Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We're so thankful for it. Lord, we ask that you would just settle amongst us, speak to our hearts. Lord, so many of us are in different situations and different seasons of life and different struggles. Lord, we ask that you would just breathe on us today, that we would leave here with a word of encouragement, of strength. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that our hearts would burn for this gospel, for the kingdom of God, and to proclaim the goodness and the mercy of Jesus in the coming days. So in your name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, as I studied this week and tried to get my mind around the implications of our text, I thought some about um, Clement of Rome, who was a disciple of Paul, the apostle. And when Paul and Peter were martyred, church history tells us that Clement of Rome began to lead the church in Rome. Imagine that. That's why Clement of Rome. Um, <laughs> There's another Clement of Alexandria that's influential later, but Clement of Rome is very early. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians called First Clement. We call it First Clement, but sometimes people kind of tongue-in-cheek call it Third Corinthians because um, Clement, who is a disciple of Paul, is going to sound very much like Paul, argue very much like Paul. Um, the letter of First Clement's really interesting for a couple reasons. First, because even after Paul was martyred, the Corinthian church was still a mess. Um, that's kind of encouraging, actually. <laughs> that, um, and so uh, that's funny that Clement, after Paul's death, is still writing to Corinth, who is probably the messiest church in the New Testament. Um, and Clement's going to argue, essentially, the church at Corinth at this point had some divisions in their church leadership. They had deposed, I don't know if that's the right word, kind of sat down some of their elders, um, and Clement's going to argue that it was unbiblical, their actions were unbiblical, and they needed to repent of their lack of unity and get back to work. And so one, it's funny because Corinth is still a mess. Second, the letter First Clement is really interesting because it's written very, very early. And so it's dated somewhere in the 60s AD. So the church never considered First Clement to be canon or Bible, but the church read it, and the church at Corinth read it um, like annually for years. Um, but Clement would have written in the 60s. But remember that um, Revelation would have been written in the 90s. Um, it most likely was written in the 90s. So it's really interesting because Clement actually wrote, um, even before the canon was closed, John the Beloved, John uh, the Disciple, was really, really young as he was a disciple of Jesus. So he lived for a long time. Third, it's interesting because Clement is going to expose for us what I would call his praxis. Everybody say praxis. Yeah, you nailed it. Um, yeah, beautiful. I can't get my kids to repeat after me, but you guys are awesome. Uh, I did that for me. Um, by praxis, I mean what Clement believed about ministry. When we talk about uh, theology or doxology, we're talking about doctrine and belief. Praxis, what do you believe practically should happen? How do you operate? What we find in Clement is that the letter first Clement is a little bit longer than Corinthians. And the Corinthian letters are both very long um, in the New Testament. Clement is long, but 
but it quotes the Old Testament like nonstop. Clement quoted so much scripture. So he's addressing a problem in a, in a first century church, and he's just going to ravel off Old Testament scripture, arguing from the text. He believed that the church should argue, reason, build its beliefs from the Bible. Clement shows us that. Second, Clement is going to continually appeal to the Apostle Paul. He says at one point in the letter, um, essentially, I'm looking for my notes, but he essentially says, uh, what did Paul say to you? What did the Apostle Paul encourage you to do? And so Clement, who is the bishop at this point, and has some level of leadership. He doesn't appeal to his own leadership, but he appeals first to the scriptures and second to the apostolic witness testimony. And so his praxis or his idea as to how the church should be led through issues, through problems, through um, splits. This would be a church split. He believed the church should be led by studying the Bible and clinging to apostolic authority. And so there we find this concept that we're going to continue we wrestle with in Jude, and, and I keep bringing us back to the concept or the doctrine called the sufficiency of Scripture. By sufficiency of Scripture, we mean we have all we need for life and godliness in the Word of God. We have all we uh, need for nourishment. The leadership, the direction, the vision that the church needs is found in the God-breathed Word of God. We don't have to run to extra-biblical sources or to new, fresh revelation to find leadership. We have it in the Word. But Jude is addressing a church who is dabbling in what I would call extra-biblical Ideas. Everybody say extra biblical. We'll get into what we mean by that a little bit as we go. Let's read the text. I'll back up and try to give us a little bit of context and then we'll move towards our ideas today. Verse 9 of Jude. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed, but all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Their shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, their fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, Jude said a lot there. I told the church earlier, I would call that going off, okay? He just went off. Uh, and we'll take some time to try to unpack what he said. First, let's back up and review. Remember that this book was written by the younger half-brother of Jesus, the younger biological half-brother of Jesus, most likely to a church that he planted. We know from church history and from the, the, the account of Scripture that the brothers of Jesus were heavily involved in ministry, planting churches, leading churches. So Jude sits down to write a letter to a church who he wanted to encourage. He said, I long to write to you about our common faith. He wanted to encourage, to bless, to share about our our redemption and salvation. But he said, as I sat down to write, I felt compelled, I felt an urgent need to write to you to contend 
for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. In other words, Jude said, I wanted to write and bless you, but I felt an urgency from the Holy Spirit to write to you that you need to fight to conserve or preserve the apostolic teaching, the historic faith. And so what we find is that Jude says in verse 4 of this letter, he told us that there are some who have crept in the church unnoticed. Now, we've referred to them thus far in our series as intruders. Thomas Schreiner used that phrase. Verse 4 tells us that these intruders are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says of the intruders, they're relying on their dreams. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glory ones, glorious ones. So we learned thus far in the letter that these intruders are what we would call antinomian. That means lawless or against law. Now, I want to take a moment to try to make sure I'm communicating clearly concerning what's happening in this church and that, that my, I'm understood clearly. What Jude is saying is that these people are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Remember last week we said that they are... Um, saying that because of grace, you can now continue to fulfill whatever sensual desires you have, whether it be sexual or financial or um, sometimes we just have ego things. Whatever you want to pursue in your life, just go for it. Run. God has forgiven you. There's no reason to live righteously. Now, we said last week that God is the ultimate expression of a good father. Okay, He calls himself father for a reason. He's a wonderfully good and holy father. And as a good father, I'm going to use technical language here because I want to make sure I'm understood. Our good father, God, is merciful. Everybody say merciful. Mercy means that we do not get punishment that we deserve. Okay, because God is merciful, I deserve judgment. I deserve wrath. I've sinned, and the wages of my sin are death. I deserve condemnation, but because of the cross and God's mercy, I don't get what I deserve. Praise God, right? God is merciful. We're so thankful for God's mercy. The technical term for grace is that God gives us what we don't deserve. So mercy means I don't get punishment that I deserve, And grace means that I get the favor, the blessing, the joy of the Lord, the power of the Spirit, which I don't deserve. So I don't get punishment, but I get grace. And so what these intruders are doing is they're saying, God is merciful, therefore live however you want to live, and it's all good. But we said last week that God is not just merciful, he's also a gracious, good, kind father. And so... I'm assuming that there are enough of us in the room who have kids. All my kids are still little, so I haven't crossed this bridge. But I'm assuming that some of you as parents have had kids who have wandered astray, or maybe let's assume someone's got a kid who's struggling with drug addiction or alcoholism. If your child comes to you struggling with alcoholism and says, Mom and Dad, please forgive me. I've lied, stolen, cheated, whatever. Please forgive me. I haven't treated you rightly or justly. We as good parents have mercy on our children, right? We say, of course you're forgiven. We love you. You're always welcome in our home, right? You, you come at, I, yes, you're forgiven. Forgiveness is freely given to our children. We love them so much. We're good parents. But, but it doesn't stop with mercy. We continue with, now please let's get you some help. Like, let's talk about rehab. Let's talk about how we can get your life back on track. Because the alcoholism or the drug addiction is destructive, 
right? So God is a good father. doesn't just say, have mercy, continue to destroy yourselves. God is a really good, loving father, says, have mercy because I love you. Now I'm going to give you the grace and the power of the spirit to break the destructive patterns of hell in your life. Okay, and so that's the full presentation of the gospel. These people, the intruders are saying, God's merciful. Here's another, to the alcoholic, here's another drink. Jude is saying, God's merciful. He will lead you to paths of righteousness. He'll lead you to peace and joy in the spirit. He's calling you to participate in the coming kingdom of righteousness. God doesn't want you just to continue in patterns of destruction. So Jude says, these intruders pervert grace into sensuality. They, they pervert mercy into licentiousness. That's the word that some translations use. Now, last week, Jude reminded us of three accounts of, um, three accounts of scripture, one strange account from the book of Enoch. Um, and remember, the, the reminder was that God always judges wickedness. And he said, remember that Jesus led Israel out of Egypt and then judged those in the wilderness who continued in rebellion. And then he said, uh, remember, this was the, the case from Genesis 6 that's elaborated on the book of Enoch. Um, he said, remember that angels left their place of authority and pursued their lust towards women and produced children, and God judged them for that. Um, that is from the book of Enoch. That's from the intertestamental period. The book of Enoch takes some scripture from Genesis 6 and then tries to expound and tell a story um, through some oral tradition on what, what's believed to have happened there. The book of Enoch in the first century church in Judaism was never considered to be authoritative or canon, but all of, of, of first century Jews would have read it. Like, they read things, so they would have read it. Um, and today in our text, Jude's appealing to what may be from what's called the Testament of Moses. We, we don't quite know what's happening here, um, but we'll get to that in a minute. So the third thing he says is that Sodom and Gomorrah, they were judged for their sexual sin. And so last week we learned that God has always judged rebellion. He's not showing us mercy just so that we can continue in rebellion. He's not pleased with a rebellion. And the second emphasis that we kind of slid past last week that we need to focus on this week is Jude was essentially saying these intruders will be judged. They will experience the judgment of God. And he's going to, for lack of better words, go off about that today. So that's where we are. Jude writing to a church, preserve the true doctrine, contend against the intruders, don't fall for their false teaching. So the first thing he did in our text today was he began to talk about this account of Michael the archangel contending with, with Satan over the body of Moses. Now, this is again um, from most likely from the Testament of Moses. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 34 says this. As the Lord had predicted, the Lord's servant Moses died in Moab. He was buried in a valley in Moab near Beth Peor. And even today, no one knows where his grave is. And so from that text, the Jews assumed and told stories about God himself burying Moses. Because no one knows where his grave is, that when Moses died, God buried Moses. This is all an oral tradition. And then there was these stories that developed about Michael the archangel burying Moses, going to bury Moses' body, but Satan trying to contend for the body of Moses, claiming authority over the body of Moses, trying to rob Moses of a proper burial. So now in Jewish tradition, there was this idea that Michael and Satan 
fought over the body of Moses. Some suggest, now there's not much evidence for this, but we're in the realm of um, speculation here. Some suggest that Satan argued for the body of Moses on the basis of Moses' murdering an Egyptian um, before the Exodus. And they're saying, so Moses was a murderer. Satan was trying to claim access to Moses' body so that he couldn't have a proper burial. But Michael the archangel, Jude says, he did not... He says, Michael the archangel didn't condemn Satan or begin to rebuke Satan or begin to talk about Satan's own misdeeds and sins and rebellion. But rather, Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuke you. Then even Michael, who is scripturally speaking, seems to be the leading archangel, the highest angel in God's angelic armies, doesn't step into this place of trying to do spiritual warfare with Satan by condemning him, um, belittling him, but rather just says, kind of, Father, rebuke him. So, I know this is strange for us. We didn't read these books, but the first century church did. The point that Jude is getting at is this. The church is not to get caught up in what's happening in the spiritual realm that is veiled from us. The church, we're charismatics. I'm a charismatic. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in healing. I believe there are demons. Yes, even on the Western continent, I believe that we're called to cast them out. I believe all of that for a second. Not for a moment do I doubt miracles, the supernatural. I believe it because the Bible says that's the world we live in. Um, so I believe that. But charismatics are, are known for sliding into what I would call extra-biblical land. Okay, let's think carefully. Everyone think with me. There are three categories that help us to think about these things. First, we, we want to be people who believe, teach, and proclaim those things that are biblical. So some teaching we teach, I want to be biblical. I want to teach you things on Sunday mornings that are biblical. Then there's a, there's a, a category called anti-biblical which would be those doctrines or teachings that the Bible plainly condemns. Okay, so some teaching is anti-biblical. The Bible plainly condemns certain sexual practices, plainly condemns polytheism, right? Any place that calls itself a church but claims it's some kind of polytheism or universalism, that's anti-biblical. There are some things that are anti-biblical. The third category is a category where we need to tread softly, use discernment, and not live there is a category called extra-biblical. Everyone do this with your fingers and say extra-biblical. Wow. Um, now, there are lots of things that are extra-biblical. I told the church earlier, there's this, this thing called geometry, which the Bible doesn't teach. And for many of us who didn't like math in school, we think it actually came from hell, okay? Um, I'm obviously joking. Um, yeah, hallelujah. Um, I'm obviously joking. But geometry is true. It's not biblical truth. Some people try to make claims that, you know, studying the temple, you can do whatever. Um, the Bible does not teach me in the New Testament that um, I, it doesn't teach me geometry, Okay, But it's true, and my kids probably need to know it. And so there are lots of things that are extra-biblical truths. Like the Bible's not exhaustive. That's really what we're getting at, right? The Bible is true. The idea of scriptural sufficiency means it gives me everything I need for my spiritual life, but it's not exhaustive. It doesn't teach me geometry or trigonometry or any of those things, and it may be because they're demonic. I don't know yet. Um, 
So there are things that are extra biblical, which the Bible doesn't speak to directly. And a lot of times as charismatics, we love to live in extra biblical land. So I'm going to speculate a bit about the extra biblical land that this church is living in that Jude's speaking of. But I think that I'm right. That's part of thinking is thinking you're right. Anyway, we'll have that conversation another day. Um, This church seems to be caught up in these intruders are teaching things about the spiritual realm that are extra-biblical speculations. And so Jude says that they're blaspheming the glorious ones. They're caught up in trying to um, belittle or, 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 or rebuke things, demons or demonic powers in the spiritual realm. And we do know from the scripture that there are demonic powers. We know, for instance, from Daniel, Daniel was praying and fasting and asking the Lord for, for revelation concerning the Babylonian captivity. He knew from Jeremiah that it was going to end at 70 years. So he's fasting and praying and asking the Lord to end it. And we're told in the book of Daniel that the prince of Persia was fighting with Michael, the archangel and the, the, the prince of Greece. And so we see this kind of glimpse in the spiritual realm of Michael fighting with some demonic power that's, that's hovering over Persia and needing to break through that demonic power to bring revelation to Daniel. We see that in the book of Daniel, but the book of Daniel doesn't really teach us anything about how we're to engage in that fight or that we're to rebuke the prince of Persia. We just see Daniel fasting and praying and asking Father God for breakthrough and revelation. And as Daniel's fasting and praying, there's an angelic and demonic fight happening in the spiritual realm. Now, an extra biblical idea that many charismatics get caught up in is they say, we see this glimpse of the spiritual realm in Daniel. Therefore, we now need to pray and try to understand what demonic power is over our region. We need to be able to name it. We need to rebuke it. We need to um, gather around and march around our city and try to rebuke the demonic power that rests over our area. But like nowhere in the New Testament gives us that idea. That's an extra-biblical concept, and you start living in this extra-biblical land, and it makes you feel really spiritual and really high. But Judah's saying, look, they're, they're, they are blaspheming the spiritual realm. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, not even Michael would blaspheme the Satan. He would say, Father, help. Father, rebuke. And so there was this teaching. Um, I don't know how popular it is anymore. Uh, I, I haven't heard much of it in a while, but in the 90s, it really took off this teaching about um, spiritual warfare. It's sometimes called high-level strategic spiritual warfare. There's a million things it's called. And the teaching was essentially that the church should pray and try to discern what principality is over their region. So, like, if your region had high levels of abortion, they may conclude that the region is ruled by a demon of murder or they would name it something. And then once they've named the demon that they believe rules over the region, they would have to do warfare with that demon through fasting, prayer, repentance, walking, proclaiming, prophesying. And what they would actually do is then they would draw these maps. Like they, I'm making this up, but they might say Hilton Head is ruled by a demon of whatever murder, but then Bluffton is ruled by a demon of uh, perversion. And so in, in Hilton Head, you got to fight this demon and Bluffton, you got to fight this demon and you need to know how to, how to do all of that. And all of that is what you would call extra biblical. Like it's, it's, it's not what, it's not what the Bible's teaching the church to do. And they would say, until you've walked, until you've prayed and done all of that, um, you should, then you could preach the gospel after you've cast down the demon. Well, the biblical concept is that the church should just preach the gospel. 
We, we are called to cast out demons, to lay our hands on the sick. I'm for all of that. But there's nothing in the New Testament that tells me that hey, we as Christians should spend the bulk of our time trying to discern the principality of our region. We should speculate about what's happening in the spiritual realm. We should teach one another these formulas and these maps, and we should draw these patterns of how we're to engage in some spiritual warfare. And, and there, the Bible tells us, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, live righteously. Ephesians 6 does say that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. But he doesn't say that we wrestle with those powers and principalities through some kind of some kind of um, spiritual march around the region. He says that we wrestle with them through preaching the gospel. We wrestle with them through teaching righteousness and holiness. And so, yes, I agree that it does seem from the Bible that there are powers in the air that may even rule over regions. But the way that we fight, the way that we wrestle is through preaching the gospel and teaching holiness. And so if we have a problem, for, for instance, with abortion in our region, we don't fight it by trying to contend with some demon. We proclaim the sanctity of life and the gospel that God loves all creation, right? We, we contend with it on this, for lack of better words, this is not a good word, like terrestrial level with people. That sounds like I'm participating in the spiritual thing. Does that make sense? We cast out demons person to person, but we're not to be caught up in these kind of things. So what Jude's addressing is a charismatic, they seem charismatic to me, um, but he's addressing a church that's participating in some kind of trying to call down demonic powers and belittling demonic powers and trying to participate in spirit in the spiritual realm in ways that God has not called nor designed humanity to participate in. It's, it's good to stay in your lane. And our lane is preach the gospel. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that as we pray and preach the gospel and lay hands on the sick, I believe that there are angelic beings combating and doing things in the spiritual realm. That's their realm. This is our realm. We've got to stick to it. Now, what happens is these kind of people who teach extra biblical doctrines and ideas, they begin to prop themselves up as the special teachers with secret knowledge. They know more than everybody else. They have the secret patterns. And at that place, you're really beginning to flirt with what we would call Gnosticism or like secret spiritual ideas. It's dangerous and I think the emphasis of Jude is really pushing us to be a people who believe scriptural sufficiency, to live from the Bible, to preach biblical ideas. It's not that everything that's extra biblical is necessarily wrong, but it's not what the Bible teaches us to do or live by. Okay, So the first thing he says is, look, you're caught up in trying to cast down demonic powers, and Paul warns us over and over, be, be weary of people who are obsessed with angels. That's a Pauline warning. Be weary of people who are obsessed with angels. And so these people are obsessed with angels and demons, trying to name things. And the first thing Jude says, not even Michael did that. He just said, Father, help. Secondly, somebody say secondly. When we move from the, the, the Michael and Satan story, the next thing he does is he releases what I would call uh, a trinity of woes. Woes. Now, we studied Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus released seven woes. Do you guys remember this at all? Um, that's probably a couple years ago now. But Jesus said things like, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs, meaning outside you're beautiful and white, but inside you're filled with rotting, stinking flesh. Um, and we just studied, and as we tried to understand what's meant by a woe, a biblical woe, we decided that that word and phrase essentially means you're about to get what's coming to you. 
So anytime the Bible says, woe to you, it's saying judgment is coming quickly on your wicked actions. So now Jude's going to release a trinity of woes. And what he's saying is to the intruders, you're about to get it. You're about to get what's coming to you. So let's look at the trinity of woes really quickly. And then we'll move into what I call the going off section. First, the first woe, he said, woe to you, you walk in the way of Cain. Now, remember the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brought a sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord, and Cain brought a sacrifice that was not pleasing to the Lord. Cain did not repent and change his actions, but rather with jealousy and envy, actually attacked and murdered Abel because of his own wickedness. So the first thing Jude says is that these intruders, these false teachers, they're walking in the way of Cain. Now, I want you all to pay attention to me closely here. Meaning that they bring a false sacrifice. They preach a false gospel. And because of their own wickedness, they're actually beginning to persecute or to rebuke those who are preaching the true. Now, this is a deceptiveness that always happens when you begin to slide into false teaching. False teachers always have to justify themselves. They have to bolster themselves up as the true and the right ones. And in doing so, they will begin to condemn, throw stones at, if you will. That's literally what happens with Cain and Abel. They will begin to rebuke the faithful who are teaching the word of God. What happens, again, this is something charismatics slip into in particular. Many times when charismatics begin to live in extra-biblical land and they're sliding into false teaching, they begin to say things like, there are no pastors in our city who preach the gospel. We're the only faithful ones who preach the word of God. They only preach parts of it, but we preach the whole. We have the real knowledge. That's dangerous. Because you're really, what you're really saying is, we're more spiritual than everyone else, and everyone else, they, they're not faithful to the scriptures. When in reality, it's you who are in error, and everyone else is just trying to be faithful to the plain and simple teaching of the word. Does that make sense? So what happens is as you begin to slide into false teaching, you'll find yourself picking up stones to throw at the the Baptist preacher across the street who's just trying to teach the word of God. And it's usually driven by a need to feel spiritual and superior to our brothers and sisters in Christ who may disagree with us on some doctrines, but it's it's this, this hierarchy, mystical, we're better than posture. So the first thing he says is that you're like Cain. You actually bring a false sacrifice, but then you pick up stones to throw at those who are clinging to apostolic authority. Two, the second thing he says to the intruders are, you're like Balaam. You pursue the way of Balaam, Balaam's gain. Now, God willing, when we finish Jude next week, the following week, we're going to study the life of Balaam. That's going to be fun because Balaam is just an interesting character. Um, That will be really interesting. Um, But he says you pursue Balaam's gain. Balaam was what you would call a prophet for hire, okay? Balaam was not concerned with Israel, with blessing Israel or caring for Israel. He was essentially hired by an enemy to curse God's people. And Balaam was um, not concerned with God's flock. He was concerned with his pocketbook, okay? And what Jude is saying here about these intruders or false teachers is that they're actually using their false teaching and their religion to bolster up themselves and pad their pockets, because by, by surrounding themselves with a following, people who are eating up their extra-biblical teaching, they're actually gathering for themselves a crowd of people who will support them financially, stroke their ego, and make them feel superior. And Jude calls them those who go after gain, uh, Balaam's gain. One, he says you're like Cain. Two, you're like Balaam. And the last thing he says is you're like um, Korah and Korah's rebellion. 
Now, Korah, remember, um, rebelled against Moses. And his complaint was essentially that Moses had a place of authority, and he believed that he, that that he and his clan, his people, they were prophets too, and they should be seen as equal to Moses, and there's no reason Moses should be telling them what to do. Do you remember what God did in this story? He split the ground and swallowed up Korah and his house whole. Scripture says they were brought straight to the belly of the earth. And so here we find Korah rebelling against God's chosen, God's prophet. So what Jude is saying is that they're actually rebelling against apostolic authority. They're rebelling against scriptural tradition. They're saying, we are just like the apostles. We have equal right and equal teaching. Don't listen to the apostles. Listen to us. And God said to Korah, judgment. So three woes. Again, the woes would be you're like Cain, you're like Balaam, you're like Cain, and that you're, you're, you're bringing false sacrifices and persecuting the truth. You're like Balaam, you're actually only concerned with your pocket, your profits for hire. And third, you are like Korah, rebelling against God's chosen. Now, those were the three woes, and the next thing we slide into is the going off section, okay? Going off is what you do in middle school when someone calls you chunky, all right? Maybe that was just me, I don't know. Um. <laughs> so after the trinity of woes, we slide into the going off section, and he's going to list just kind of a, a list of rebukes. It's really, really fun, okay? Let's go through the fun rebukes. The first, he says... These are hidden reeves at your love feast. Now, what you need to know about the first century church is that when they had communion, they would share communion in homes, but they would typically have a whole meal before, and it was they would call it a love feast. So it would be like everyone comes to the house church, we share bread, break bread, laugh together, we share communion, and that would be a love feast. Now, what Jude says is that there are some who have slipped into their love feast who don't even fear the fact that they are... They're blaspheming against the true communion. They've slipped in amongst the love feast, and Jude says they are hidden reeves. Now, let me explain to you this uh, like this. Um, I have what you would call a little skiff, a little john boat, okay? We don't have a depth finder. We have a fishing pole, which means we stick the fishing pole in the water to see how deep we are. Now, what happens when you don't have a depth finder and you're hauling tail with your 15-horsepower motor and you're slamming across the water is sometimes you just slap a sandbar, okay? Because the sandbar is under the water, and I don't know that it's there. And so more than it, 10 times at least have we been cooking across the water, wha-pow, just slap the sandbar. Um, that's the idea with calling them hidden reefs. Reeves are obviously a little more dangerous than a sandbar. Is that a boat is going along, is unaware of the depth, and they smack into a reef, and the, bro- the boat is broken up and shipwrecked. And so when Paul says they are like hidden reeves, he's saying they're, you're cruising along, thinking everything's fine, and all of a sudden you smack something you were unaware of, hidden beneath the water. Again, we take the fishing pole and just stick it. But sometimes you're going too fast to stick it in and see how deep you are. You might be a redneck. And next, he says, so first they're hidden reeves. They break you up unnoticed. They're unnoticed. Next, they're shepherds who only feed themselves. The prophets use this analogy a lot. The idea of a fat shepherd and starving sheep. Uh, that means that they're, they're pastors or prophets or teachers who aren't concerned with bringing nourishment to the flock and caring for the flock, but they're actually just trying to bolster themselves up. Again, build a crowd around themselves so they can fatten their pockets, so they can glean from the flock, and all the while the sheep are actually starving. Third, 
calls them waterless clouds. Now here's going to move to the imagery of a farmer. A farmer who's had a dry season, they've sown, and they desperately need water. And the farmer in this analogy sees a cloud coming, and it looks like a rain cloud. It looks promising. And the anxiety and the stress that the farmer has felt now for the season is beginning to wash away because it looks like rain is coming. But Jude says, you're like a a cloud that promises rain but passes by without dropping even an ounce of water. You, You promise the world but you under-deliver. Fourth, he calls them fruitless trees in late autumn, meaning that the summer harvest is past and the tree still hasn't produced anything and winter is coming and the tree is soon to, to shrivel up. And some have been banking on that fruit showing up. Some have been banking on being able to feast on the fruit from the tree, but winter is coming and nothing's been produced. Fifth, he calls them wild waves casting up the foam of their own shame, meaning that waves that are kind of slamming around, sloshing around, and all the while they're sloshing around amongst the people of God, and all they're doing is frothing up their own shame and destruction. And finally, he refers to them as wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness have been reserved. Some believe that when the Bible talks about wandering or falling stars, he's referring to demonic beings, angels that have fallen. Some go down that line of thought. If that's the way that you think, you would, this would mean that these teachers are actually influenced by demonic beings and they're headed towards judgment. Servants of demons. Now, from here, let me try to put a nice bow on that because you guys laughed at four verses, but that was a lot of information in four verses. <laughs> um, the Bible is rich. Um, let's try to put a nice bow here. First, he says about Michael and Satan, he says, um, you need to not be caught up in these extra biblical spiritual dimension concepts, and you need to stick to the word of God. You need to, you need to lean into the sufficiency of scripture, stay in your lane. Be weary of people who are always talking about the spiritual realm and spiritual dimensions. Especially be weary of people who have formulas about how to rise up into new spiritual dimensions. That's Gnostic and not Christian. The way that you rise in Christianity is you crucify the flesh and serve the broken, right? Like you humble yourself and wash the feet of the saints. That's Christian heights. First, beware of those who, are, who dabble in these ideas of the spiritual realm. Second, he, he releases these woes, and the woes are, are largely about these people, these intruders, trying to pad their own pockets, preserve themselves by abusing other people spiritually. He's saying that these intruders, they, they, they look like shepherds, but they're actually abusers. And the last thing he said through the going off section was, they promise the world, but they always underdeliver. They look like they have secret knowledge. They feel spiritual. I always say, you, it, oh, I think maybe I got this from Leonard Ravenhill, um, that sometimes, especially in, in charismatic settings, there are people full of adrenaline and they look spiritual, but just because they have a lot of adrenaline doesn't mean that they're anointed, right? You've got to be able to discern adrenaline and anointing. Um, <laughs> meaning showmanship is not always a sign of God's hand on someone's ministry. Showmanship is really entertaining, but it actually doesn't nourish you in the long run. We want to be weary of teaching this, that embraces showmanship. It's just showmanship, but it doesn't have nourishment. So he says, the last thing he says through the going off section is, they, they promise the world, but they will never nourish your souls. They have nothing to give you that will cause you to mature and to sound Christianity, to produce godly fruit. Now from there, this is why church, 
I'm, I'm telling us that we probably should learn a little bit from Clement. We need to be a little bit Clement-like. Remember again that Clement, when he goes to address an issue at the church, he just rattles off scripture. He spent a lot of time studying the word of God, believes that the word will nourish the church. The word of God preached faithfully will produce in the church good doctrine and righteousness. Clement goes, you've got a problem. Let's go to the Bible. And the second thing Clement does is he continues to return to apostolic authority. He's going to keep saying, what did Paul say? What did Peter say? What did the apostles teach us? Clement, as a, as a bishop and a leader, he could have said, let me give you fresh revelation. Let me give you my ideas and my concepts. Let me tell you what, what I like. Um, and that's a lot of times what we do. But rather, he says, let's return to biblical apostolic authority and make sure we're in line with what the apostles taught. And there we'll find life and liberty and fruitfulness. That's good preaching. Maybe you'll get it on the way home. <laughs> So, so again, I'm, I'm trying through this study to push us towards the concepts of scriptural sufficiency. That it's not always the most entertaining. It would be really entertaining if Pastor Seth got up here and explained to us this incredible angelic vision he's had and about um, 18 dreams that give us 18 keys to spiritual living. That might feel really fun, but I promise you it ain't going to produce anything godly in your life because Pastor Seth is a sinner. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He, we always say that, that Jesus has favorites at Seth. We got it, whatever. Um, but you get what I'm saying. Like so many times in modern church we do that. Let me give you seven principles from my latest dream, and it's going to bring new breakthrough in your life. Um, I'd like to stick with what, what, what sustained the church through the generations. That was the word of God, the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And when we talk about winning our city for the for the kingdom and seeing the kingdom come, we just want to stay in our lane. And Jesus called us to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out devils, serve the poor, care for the hurting. We want to do all of those things. We don't want to get tangled up in some extra biblical ideas that make us feel spiritual but actually don't produce anything. Let's, let's be about the faithful and sound gospel. Is that okay? All right, well, let me, let me pray. I want to pray over this word and ask God to really firm it up in our hearts, and then we'll step into uh, some worship in a time of ministry. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would make us a people who really embody this idea of scriptural sufficiency, that all we need for life and godliness is found in the word. Lord, we pray our church, our ministry, would be in line with, would be consistent with what the apostles did, what the early church believed. Lord, we're asking in Jesus' name that we be faithful, that we defend the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Do it in us, we pray, God. We know that's not always the most exciting or an entertaining way to do church, but we believe it's the, the, the healthiest way, the most fruitful way. So bear good fruit in our midst. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Somebody say amen.